the Jodcast. You can't see it, but it's there. With George Bendo, Indy Leclerc, Josie Peters, Mark Perver, Hannah Stacey and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast. May 2015 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josie and I'm with Hannah and Mark. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, we interview Emily Petroff about fast radio bursts and Dr. George Bendo answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Mark interviews Dr. Joe Zuntz about the latest results from the Dark Energy Survey in this month's Jodbite. For this month's Jodbite, I'm interviewing Dr. Joe Zuntz and you are the first person to be interviewed twice for a Jodbite. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Flattering. (laughs) I know I was your second choice, though, so... (laughs) That's not true. Well, it might be. So you spoke the first time about your work with the Dark Energy Survey. And now I believe you've got a few results for us. So first of all, maybe could you just recap what the Dark Energy Survey is all about? Yeah, so um, the Dark Energy Survey is a big international collaboration of about 300 people. It's got people from all over the world in it, especially a bunch of people in the UK and the US and Spain and all over. And the survey built a telescope, or built a, a camera, should I say, or and helped rebuild a telescope in uh, Cerro Tololo in Chile, which is an optical telescope. It's going to do a survey of a huge part of the sky. So it's a wide field survey. So it's not looking at individual objects. We don't care about individual stars or galaxies. We're looking at wide fields. So we're trying to take really big images of a huge chunk of sky. And the goal for the whole five years of the project, or six years of the project, is to take an image of about an eighth of the sky. So that's 5,000 square degrees. That's a lot. That's a very big chunk of sky. So the moon, for reference, is about uh, half a degree across. So it's about a quarter of a square degree. So we're looking at many, many thousands of times bigger than the moon. And how deep into the universe (laughs) are you looking one of the goals of the project is to look at very, very distant galaxies. Our, our kind of our typical galaxy is what we call redshift 0.8. So redshift one is about half the age of the universe, not exactly, but you know, give or take. So it's a, we're looking at things that are a big chunk of the way through the history of the whole universe. So we're looking very, very far back in time. So the, yeah, survey. so the distances are then directly related to how long ago you're seeing things. Exactly. So as always in cosmology, when you're looking at very distant objects, you're also looking back in time, just because the light has taken time to get from it to you. So we're tracking both how the universe varies across the sky, so we're having a big area, but also how it varies throughout time. So we're trying to make a kind of history of the universe as well as a map. So it's kind of those two at the same time. And so in this galaxy survey, where does dark energy fit into the picture? So it's in the name, so you know it's involved somehow. Dark energy is the phenomenon by which we've observed in the last 15 years or so that the universe is not just expanding, it's accelerating. We've known for about 100 years that the universe is expanding. But we always assumed it would kind of start to decelerate as gravity pulled it back together again. Uh, That turns out not to be true. Um, We don't really have any idea why. There's lots of theories, but nothing kind of concrete yet about why this is happening. What we can do is try and measure how fast it's accelerating. When did the acceleration begin? Questions like that. Does the acceleration smooth or is it, you know, different in different places? Those are the kinds of questions we can ask. And we call this phenomenon dark energy just to kind of give a placeholder name for it, really, until we can figure out what it is properly. Now, The acceleration of the universe has a knock-on effect on the matter in the universe. So the history of the universe is one of collapsing structures. So the very, very early universe, everything was very boring. Everything was just a kind of thin mist of matter all over the place, plasma. But over the last 13 or 14 billion years, that plasma, that matter, has collapsed down and clustered into what we now today see as galaxies, clusters of galaxies, stars, planets, people. 
that kind of stuff. The rate at which that happens, the way in which that happens, is a marker of, or a very good tracer of how the wider universe is behaving. So if the whole universe is blasting apart very, very quickly, that kind of slows down that clustering process because all the individual stuff is kind of pulled apart a little bit by the expansion, even though it's kind of pulled together by gravity. So if we can track how structure has grown, how fast have galaxies been pulled together, how fast have clusters of galaxies grown, that kind of thing, over the course of the last about 8 billion years, which is when we roughly when we think dark energy started to appear, or a bit, bit higher than that, if we can track that history, so if we can measure how dark matter and, and ordinary matter have grown and, and clustered together, that's kind of indirectly tells us about how the universe has been accelerating and expanding over that time. So how do you look at that? Are you looking at the the shapes of the galaxies or the colours of the galaxies? So we have a bunch of different probes. That's one of the cool things about our survey is that we... And we actually measure a lot of different things at once. The uh, the final results will be a mixture of all those things kind of put together. So we have some supernova measurements which tell us how fast the universe is expanding because we know how bright they are and we can see how far away they look. We have galaxy positions, so that's just sort of saying, well, we can see clusters of galaxies and groups of galaxies. That's a kind of measure of where the underlying matter around those galaxies is. But the particular thing I'm focused on and the thing that we've released recently is something called lensing. In lensing, we have the only way we know of of looking at dark matter not quite directly but as directly as you can with something that's essentially invisible and that is that the only way we are absolutely sure that dark matter interacts is by gravity because that's how we detect it in the first place and because that's how we detect it that's also how we can map it and how we can measure its its position in the universe so essentially we look for very very distant galaxies that are behind all the matter we're interested in and we look at how the light from those galaxies has been distorted how it's been twisted and in particular how those galaxy shapes have been sort of squashed or sheared we we call it by the gravity between us and them so if we can measure how much galaxies have been distorted this means measuring the shapes of galaxies if we can measure those shapes accurately enough then we can make a sort of two and a half dimensional map of, of dark matter well strictly we're making a map of gravity um, but we think we understand how gravity and dark matter relate to each other so you should probably mention the, the dark matter and the dark energy here a different thing. Yeah, so they're, they're both dark, but that's pretty much all they have in common, apart from being a bit mysterious. Dark matter is a invisible, sub- it's very clearly a substance. We know it clusters, we know it kind of pulls together under gravity. Substance which we, as, as far as we know, and we're, we're pretty sure about this, is this is one of the less ambiguous things. Dark matter is much less mysterious than dark energy. Dark, dark matter is a bit more solid, because we've seen it in lots of different ways. So we're pretty sure dark matter is real, and it forms a kind of skeleton of structure in the universe. So most of the matter in the universe is dark. And the visible matter, like we're made of and the sun is made of and the stars and galaxies, sort of follows the dark matter around. Um, So the dark matter is most of it, so it has the most gravity, it's the strongest effect, and everything else sort of follows it and falls into the gravitational fields of of this dark matter. So then you're actually using the light from the normal matter Mm -hmm. as changed by the gravity of the dark matter to tell you about the effects of dark the, energy. Dark energy. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's a you know real combination of things. And that's one reason it's very powerful, um, because we're not just looking at one you know one effect. We're looking at sort of the, the interplay of different things, which is the clustering behaviour of dark matter and gravity and the expansion effect of dark energy at the same time. So we're looking at both the expansion rate of the universe and the clustering of matter at the same time. And mm. that's one reason it's a very powerful technique. And so what... Uh are the, uh, the the first results from the Dark Energy Survey. So we released our, our first set of results very recently. Um, there are lots of different statistics you do, and lots of different measurements and, and interpretations we make of this kind of data. Ultimately, we want to start to constrain the parameters of the universe, and that's what we'll be doing quite soon. I have a meeting next week where we're going to go and try and hash that out more carefully. But one of the, the first things we can do is make a map. 
just pretty much directly make a map from all these distortions. We can make a gravitational map of the chunk of sky that we're looking at. So we've not done the whole survey yet. The whole survey is over the next four or, well, probably three years now. But what we do have is the the first year of data. So we call it our, our verification year. So it's when we were sort of testing the telescope, making sure everything's working okay. So it's not the best data we're going to get. It's the kind of, things were a little bit dodgy. There was a little bit of a problem with the air conditioning in the telescope, which sounds like it's very, <laughs> just a complaint, but actually that's an effect on, on how the galaxies can be measured because we have to have very, very good precision measurements. And if there's all these air currents going around, that can damage things. But we've, um, from our very early data, we've made a map of a small patch of our sky. So I told you that our full map is going to be 5,000 square degrees, or an eighth of the sky. Our current map is just 150 square degrees, so just a much, much smaller chunk that we've gone into just in our very, very early phases. So that's what we've finished analysing so far. And it's taken us a long time, longer than we'd hoped, but we got through it in the end. And we've um, we've managed to turn that into a map of where the matter is and where the, where the gravity is and hopefully where the dark matter is in, in, a, in this small chunk of sky. And the nice thing is that seems to correlate very nicely with where the galaxies are. So we sort of expect the position of galaxies to correlate with the position of dark matter, because we think the galaxy should follow the dark matter. So where there's lots of dark matter, there should be lots of galaxies and vice versa. And it's not a perfect one-to-one matching for various interesting reasons, which is why we need to do these surveys in the first place, because otherwise we could just look for the galaxies and say, okay, there's one, that's where the dark matter is. But this kind of map will help us understand that kind of relationship between where galaxies are and where dark matter is. So that's one of its functions. It's also going to help us understand our data more carefully. So there are all kinds of things that can contaminate what you're measuring. In um, astronomy in particular and lots of parts of science, you're not really measuring the thing you really want to measure. Lots of other things get in the way or they mess things up or they distort everything that's going on. So we can use this map as a kind of check on those kind of distortions. We can say, okay, well, let's make let's look at this map. Does it does it correlate with the date that the image of that part of the sky was taken? Is is it true that any time we were looking low in the sky as opposed to high in the sky, we get a different result? We right. can make that yeah. kind of test. So it's a very useful test for that kind of thing as well. That's not the sexy science, but that's the you know that's the, the meat of the whole thing that that we care about. So it's going to do all these things, and so it's a very very exciting um, piece of work, and we um, we're very pleased to have released it. And is the effect of dark energy apparent? So in this early data, this kind of first year of data, we're not going to see dark energy. We're not really going to make a strong constraint on dark energy at this stage. We may get a very mild sort of measurement with a huge statistical error, So, but we're certainly not going to get anything particularly strong with this early data, no. We have to sort of wait for that for future data. And that's a, that's a very big process. We have to measure the sort of statistics of, these, of a sort of giant version of one of these maps. We have to say... How big are these lumps of dark matter? How, you know, throughout time? And if we have to chop up our map into different slices throughout distance in, into space. So we have to say, okay, here's a map of the local universe. Here's the slightly further away. Here's a very distant universe. We have to do that as well. So our early data, we should be able to constrain, and we're working on this right now, we should be able to constrain not so much dark energy, but the um, amount of dark matter in the universe, the amount of clustering of that dark matter. We'll be able to constrain that to some extent, because that's a kind of very direct, that has a very strong effect on our data. Dark energy has a relatively indirect and fairly, not, not weak, but also not particularly precise. It has a very general effect, but not a very specific one. Whereas the amount of dark matter, you know, really changes our results completely, or, or what you would predict for the results completely. So we're hoping to get that out in the next few months as well. And that's a particularly exciting area because there seems to be a bit of a uh, kind of confusion or a little bit of disagreement between different kinds of cosmological data about what these numbers should be. So basically, when we look at the very, very distant universe with the microwave background and the the, uh, sort of primordial universe, we see uh, more structure and more matter than we're expecting when we compare it to the local universe, the small-scale universe. So there's a little bit of confusion there, and and that could be nothing. That could just be, um, you know, most data is wrong in some way. It could be that that's just a mistake or it could be just 
you know, statistical fluctuations. Or it could be something a bit more interesting that's telling us about how the universe has changed throughout its history between these very early times and very late times. So we're really hoping that we can we can sort of shed some light on that and see whether we agree with whether our data, you know, backs up one of these stories or the other. Great. Yeah, it's fascinating that the dark energy is so hard to get handled on because you were talking about how things change and obviously with dark matter it clumps and that's nice because that helps you to to know something about it but the dark energy i understand the simplest idea anyway is that it's just sort of completely uniform field exactly yeah change in time or is that something we just don't um we uh, the baseline theory we have is it doesn't change in time it's kind of a uniform constant effect um, that could be wrong, and that's one of the things we're testing. We should certainly hope to get fairly powerful constraints on that question in our five years of data, not with our early data, but with our future data. We're going to sort of measure has dark energy changed with time, or is it a kind of static effect? But yeah, it's also and also is there clustering in dark energy as well? We've always assumed there isn't. You can sort of write down mathematical models whether it does cluster in some way or it does things. Um, the theorists tend to hate those things, but the observers think, well, fair enough. You know, most things cluster. Why shouldn't this? So we're we're going to test that kind of model as well. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, it's a very it's a very hard thing to get a handle on. You know, it, it took a very long time. It was only to, um, the 90s when this was really discovered as an effect. It's very hard to get hold of because it happens only on the biggest scales as well. The amount of dark energy in this room between you and me is absolutely minuscule. It's nothing. You know, it's undetectable compared to the amount of ordinary matter there is, even though that makes up only a small fraction overall. It's just the fact that it fills the whole universe and every, every way that we think is even empty space it actually has all this dark energy. And so it's, it's only really on the very, very largest scales where dark energy has any effect whatsoever, which is why we need these kind of massive surveys that look a very, very long way away. We have to map a big chunk of the universe to be able to detect these kind of effects. Fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to more of the results over the next few years. It sounds like it's going to gradually become more and more precise in the measurements. Exactly. And perhaps you'll come back for a third job by at some point and tell us how it's going. I'd love that. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Mark. Now, what do mysterious extragalactic signals, rogue microwave ovens and mythical creatures all have in common? Charlie interviews Emily Petroff to find out. Today we're going to be talking to Emily Petroff from Swinburne Uni of Technology in Melbourne. Thank you for joining us on Jobcast. Thanks, it's good to be here. So you've been visiting Jodrell Bank to give a a few talks, but before that, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a PhD student at the moment, so I'm about two and a half years into my PhD, and I'm based in Melbourne, Australia, and I mainly study things like pulsars and radio transients and use the Parkes Radio Telescope. So I'm just coming to Jodrell and to various places in Europe to talk a bit about the work that I do and hear about all the exciting stuff that's happening here. You've been to a lot of places recently. From your Twitter, it says you've been in Dubai a lot. So where have you been going? Yeah, so I've been kind of traveling all over the place recently. I was in the Netherlands at Astron in March. And uh, on this trip in particular, I'm going to Oxford here in Manchester. I'll be in Bonn. I'll be in Amsterdam as well as Astron and then back to Bonn for a little while. So, yeah, all over the place. You were here giving a talk. Could you give us a little rundown of what that was? Yeah, so I was talking about fast radio bursts. And these fast radio bursts, well, we don't know exactly what they are, but we think that they're these very powerful, very short-lived explosions that are happening in galaxies about halfway across the universe. So my research focuses on trying to find fast radio bursts, since we only know of about a handful of them at the moment and trying to figure out where they're coming from and what could potentially be causing such incredibly violent events in other galaxies. If these things are so bright, how come we've only just sort of started finding them? How come there are so few? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So up until recently, people didn't even think to look for them. So we have these surveys that look for pulsars in our own galaxy, but we only searched a fraction of the parameter space. And so now that computers have gotten much faster, you're able to search much more of that parameter space, and it's not so expensive. It takes less time than it would have in the past. So people have started kind of pushing the boundaries of where we're looking. And in looking out to further and further distances, these fast radio bursts popped up. And so it wasn't until recently, as people sort of re-examined old data, that they started finding them, and now we're finding more and more. What is it that makes us think they come from other galaxies? How do we know? Yeah, so for pulsars, we observe with the radio emission, we observe something called a dispersion measure. And what that is, is that as the radio light travels from the, the pulsar to Earth, it goes through the interstellar medium, which is full of electrons. At different wavelengths, the light gets slowed down by a different amount, having traveled through all these electrons. And so we measure the dispersion. So that's just the time delay at different frequencies. And so for pulsars, we have a rough idea of how many electrons are in the interstellar medium. So we can kind of relate that to distance. But for these fast radio bursts, or FRBs, we're seeing that they've traveled through many, many more electrons than we can explain with our own galaxy. So the only way that you would get those extra electrons is if the burst had not only just traveled through our galaxy, but also had traveled through the intergalactic medium, so the space between galaxies. And even through the galaxy of the that's right, yeah. So so there's three components there, and we still don't really know how much of it is from the host and how much of it is from the intergalactic medium, but we do know that they have to be coming from far away and outside of our own galaxy. And are there any theories on what they could possibly be? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, we don't have a lot of information, so it's all just theories. It has to be something extremely energetic and very, very short. So these fast radio bursts only last about a millisecond, so... My favorite stat is a millisecond is about 100 times faster than the blink of a human eye. So these things are really, really quick. And so you need something that is able to produce a lot of energy in a millisecond. So we're talking explosions, flares, collisions, something very, very extreme, potentially involving the densest things in the universe, so things like neutron stars and black holes. So potentially like the collapse of a neutron star or the collision of two neutron stars in another galaxy. But we won't know until we find a lot more of them. That's right, yes. So it's still very early days. And we're getting closer to figuring out where they're coming from, but we're not there yet. So how long do you think it will take for us to find a lot? It depends. I mean, more and more telescopes around the world are looking for these things. At the moment, the majority have been found at the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia. But there's one of them that's been reported from the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico. And more and more surveys are coming online at Jodrell, at Effelsberg, at various radio telescopes all around the world that are going to be looking for these fast radio bursts. So I think yeah, more and more will start to appear as more people look. Yeah, so I've read a lot about this. What is it that makes Parks so good at finding them? Why is it the FRB machine? It is... In a lot of ways, it's it's very, very good for FRBs, partially because it spends so much time looking. So we think that they happen between five and 10,000 FRBs over the whole sky every day. But to be able to catch all of those FRBs, you need to be looking at the sky for a long period of time. So Parks gives a lot of its time to Pulsar projects, and Pulsar projects observe in a way that makes it very easy to find fast radio bursts in the data. Um, the other reason is that Parks is very powerful. So it's, it's a giant dish, 64 meters across. It's very sensitive. So you need a good combination of sensitivity and time on sky and a large field of view, because Parks looks at a large patch of sky at once. So it's just kind of like the sweet spot of all the combination to make it a really good FRB machine. So you've been finding lots and lots of them. <laughs> and um, what is it that we could learn from them? What can we actually do with them, apart from finding out maybe what they are? Yeah, so 
They're interesting for a lot of reasons. First of all, because, like I mentioned, to produce something like this, you need an extremely energetic, extremely powerful event. So potentially we're talking about something that's at the edge of extreme physics, where the event that produces these bursts could be some type of new physical phenomenon that we've never really studied before, or it could be probing a physical regime that's just so extreme that we can't study it in our own laboratories. They're also interesting because, as I mentioned, the burst travels through all of the electrons between the host and, and our telescope. So we actually have a way to measure the electrons in the intergalactic medium, which is something that's never been done before. So you could potentially, if you know the distance to the host galaxy, you could actually weigh the universe. You could be weighing all of the electrons in the intergalactic medium. So that has very interesting implications for how the universe evolved and, and what it's made of. Awesome. So lots of cosmologists are sitting there rubbing their hands with glee. Absolutely. Everybody's, yeah, everybody's getting very excited about these things. Yeah. And... Recently, you've done some interesting research of your own at Parks. Our listeners will have heard a little bit about peritons. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about that story? It's a funny one. Yeah, so if you're not familiar with peritons already, they're this kind of mystery signal that we were picking up at Parks that kind of mimic the signal that we expect for a pulsar or a fast radio burst. But instead of seeing them in just a single beam in our telescope, because it looks at multiple beams on the sky at once, instead of seeing it in a single beam like you would for an astrophysical object, it was showing up in all 13 beams at once, which hints to something happening locally. But nobody really knew what locally could be causing something that mimics a pulsar or a fast radio burst. And Earlier this year in January, we started processing our data much faster. So we we're looking through all of the data products, you know, in the day after observations. And we noticed a few of these peritons that all happened in one week. So we started asking the staff on site, well, was anything weird happening that week? They said, no, it wasn't. But they reminded us that in December of last year, they had installed a new RFI monitor on site. So this, this was something that was meant to monitor the sort of radio interference environment at parks. So we went back and looked at the monitor data. And we saw that at the exact times of the peritons, we also saw this burst of emission happening at a frequency that we weren't observing at. And these times, they were quite suspicious times of day as well, weren't they? That's right. So all of the peritons, both the archival ones and the new ones, all happen around midday. So they... Uh, Lunchtime. That's right. So we actually found out that these things are coming from the park's microwaves. So you can produce a periton if you have a direct line of sight between the microwave and the telescope receiver. And instead of waiting for the microwave to finish, you open the door of the microwave to finish your microwave cycle. And this produces a periton that we can see with our telescope. And uh, people all over the place have been testing this out. I know they've been doing it at Jodrell Bank as well. Yeah, that's been fun this week. I've seen some very, very interesting <laughs> videos that they've been producing. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's actually quite cool. They're starting to... Um, test antennas near the microwaves and stuff like that so on uh not yet but not yet. hopefully they'll okay. hopefully well, they'll be coming out yeah <laughs> yeah so what can people do to avoid this happening apart from being patient and waiting for your lunch <laughs> well, i think patience is a virtue it's difficult to keep on top of all the interference that's happening at our telescopes these days because even if when they were built the telescopes were in relatively quiet environments um, you know people with cell phones wi-fi microwaves even are starting to produce lots of various signals so yeah it's a bit tough i guess all we can do is really try to keep our radio quiet zones radio quiet <laughs> mm, and put our microwaves in cages that's, that's right <laughs> yeah. so you've been giving a few interviews about this sort of thing haven't you what has the reaction been from the media? Is it sort of a silly scientist or is it, oh, we've learned something new? 
I think it's yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think in one way it's it's got a lot of excitement both from astronomers and non-astronomers because it is, you know, it's very satisfying to solve a mystery. It's maybe not the mystery we were hoping to solve since you know, we still don't know where fast radio bursts are coming from. But, you know, sometimes people are kind of take the tack like, oh, those silly scientists just opening their microwaves all the time. But uh... <laughs> So what is the difference between protons and fast radio bursts? Like in signal, obviously one is made by a microwave and one isn't. Yeah, so this dispersion measure that I talked about, that's kind of a, an important property. So for fast radio bursts, it tells us approximately how far away they've come from. But for paratons, it seemed that... They all clustered around the same values of this dispersion measure all the time. So that gives us a clue that, you know, they're coming from these microwaves. So I think the main difference is uh, FRBs are still real and still safe. They're not coming from the same place. And that's kind of an important distinction. And we kind of know that because these paratons all have the same dispersion measures. And the FRBs are all very spread out in dispersion measures. So you'd need basically as many microwaves as there are FRBs to produce them. So it's kind of comforting, actually, because up until very recently, there was still this suspicion about the FRBs. There was a great debate yes. about whether they were the same things as paratons or not. That's right. Or so it was, it was kind of the, the logic was how can you trust that FRBs are real if you have these signals in your data that you can't even explain? Mm. So now that we've actually explained them, I think people are much, uh, happier. yes, More much relieved. happier. Yes, that's right. I'm definitely relieved. So <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, been, that's right. That's been quite nice. <laughs> yeah. That's my PhD as well. That's right. <laughs> they're all on the line. <laughs> Could you tell us about the name? Do you know why they're called peritons? The name peritons came from the idea of Sarah Burke Spillore, who published the first paper about them. And I think it's from some game or something like that. I think it's a winged deer that has the shadow of a human. So it's like the thing and its shadow are different. Like, it's not what it appears to be. It's pretending to be something that it's not. That's yeah, right. We, we looked it up and we, we saw this very weird picture. We were like, okay. Yes. Yeah. It's quite cool. <laughs> Okay, thank you. So where are you off to next once you've finished with JD? I will be in Bonn next week speaking to the folks at the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy. Excellent. How long will you be there for? Just for a week and then um, off to the next stage of my adventure. Within the same talk. <laughs> That's right. Everywhere. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for finding the time to join us today. Absolutely. It's been great to be here. Thanks for that, Charlie. And now for the things that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. I'm getting excited for my odd and end about New Horizons going to Pluto. It's the NASA probe that's been on its way for nine years, and it's now only 90 million kilometres away from Pluto, um, which sounds quite a lot, but it's going to get there in only two months, which means it's covering over a million kilometres a day. Um, and what's happened now is that it's started to send back photographs, and it's just sent back a photograph where you can see some really small moons of Pluto. So you've got Pluto and Charon, which is its largest moon, then you've also got Hydra, which is just about 100 kilometres across, apparently. And then some that are even smaller than that, Nix, Styx and Kerberos. And I think they're all to do with the underworld in Greek mythology. I think Kerberos is the many-headed dog that guards the entrance to Hades. So it's all a bit grim and, and underworldy out there. It's all dark and gloomy and cold, both Pluto. I think so. But on the other hand, the camera that they used is called Lorry. Um, it's not a, I mean, it's not a lorry, truck lorry, but it's a, it's the long range reconnaissance imager. And that is sufficiently sensitive that Pluto and Charon are completely overexposed and have to be kind of cut out of the image. Once they've done that, you can see these little tiny bright dots representing the moons. And I'm just getting excited because in the next couple of months, the photos are going to get better and better. And then even as New Horizons flies past, 
it's going to take time to send all the photos back. So you're going to have several weeks of nice photos of Pluto and its moons coming back. It'll be nice to have some proper real photos. Because I remember a couple of weeks ago they released one and said, oh, this is the closest approach we've ever had to Pluto. And it was about four or five pixels, <laughs> slightly more. But there was like a few discolorations and they thought there might be polar caps on Pluto, but who knows. I'm also interested to see if in a couple of months, I think this is going to happen, that it's going to reignite the debate about whether Pluto's a planet. Mm. And there's going to be more argument about it. Because the person who's in charge of the mission is adamant that, yes, it is a planet, but the International Astronomical Union said, no, it hasn't cleared its orbit, it's not a planet. Um, yeah, look forward to that one popping back up. It's funny because I noticed because I was following New Horizons on Twitter and they kept retweeting posts from fans that said Pluto is a planet and, <laughs> and that they've got the faith that it still is and it might change back. It's got a little atmosphere, apparently, which is a kind of planety thing to have, I suppose. But <laughs> on the other hand, I, I prefer dwarf planet, but I also think being called a planet is overrated. It's also the problem that you end up with hundreds of planets. <laughs> yeah. That's true. And whether Charon is a moon of Pluto or whether they're dwarf binary no, not dwarf. Binary, whatever they binary are. Binary planets. planets. Binary yeah. planets. But there it is. Expect better and better photos in the next few months. So, Hannah, what's your odd and end? There's some interesting um, technology that's come out of the um, Rosetta mission, which is um, a probe that they've sent to um, a comet. You've probably heard of it. So the Philae lander that they've sent up there has um, some technology, a, a gas chromatograph, and a mass spectrometer, which is designed to um, to separate organic compounds and test them and see if they've got any um, organic compounds on um, on the uh, comet. So they've taken this technology and um, they've used it to create a bed bug detector, <laughs> which um, detects the um, chemical pheromones that the bed bugs release when they're communicating with each other. Um, so that's what, pretty... <laughs> do bed, what do bed bugs say to each other? Um, this is a comfy bit. Well, they send out sort of um, pheromones which warn other bed bugs about right. things, reproductive purposes. So were there, any bed bugs, were there any bed bugs on the comet? Um, I don't think so. Not as far as we know. Rosetta mission was launched in 2001, so they've had 15 years to um, to develop technologies based on the ones that were developed for the um, Rosetta mission. Another one of them was the um, Midas atomic microscope that Philae has, which um, scans dust grains and makes 3D maps of their geometry. And they've used that to create a very sensitive actuator for um, performing coronary artery bypass operations, which basically dampens the movements of the tissue um, around the heart so they can perform um, coronary bypass operations without stopping the heart altogether. So wow. It's not been tested on humans yet. I think it's been tested on pigs and animals, but um, it looks to be quite interesting. That's quite mm. an advance. Good argument for anyone who says astronomy is useless. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does actually produce a lot of useful things. And I wonder how they joined up to realise that these things had these other uses. Was they sort of invite other scientists and engineers over and say, have a look at this? Or maybe someone in the mission just sort of sees the potential of something? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I suppose the different um, organisations that created the technology have somehow made some um, connections with the community. I think the um, the bed bug detector is being developed in cooperation with um, a pest control company in Manchester. That's good. Look forward to know more bed bugs in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> not that we have that many up here. Don't worry, it's not that grim well, we up won't. north. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't, will we? 
detector. <laughs> We've got bedding in the studio, which is actually um, sound insulation here in the Jogcast studio. So, I mean, I don't think so hopefully, got, hopefully we uh, don't have bed bugs. I don't think it's got bed bugs. It's incredibly I professional, this, isn't it? <laughs> it's got duvets on the walls. <laughs> I'd, I'd like it if we tested their bed bug detector using our... Yeah, we should probably do that. No, no one started itching yet, so we should be okay. So my odd end is about a lopsided exploding star. So NASA's uh, Nuclear Spectroscopic Telescope Array, which is shortened to New Star, has been looking at a supernova remnant called 1987A and has discovered that the remnant is lopsided and is not spherical. So New Star is an X-ray telescope which detects photons in the range of 3 to 79 kilo electron volts. Now, if you're like me, you've got no idea what a kilo electron volt really relates to. It also ranges from 2.4 times 10 to the minus 13 metres to 6.37 times 10 to the minus 12 metres. Or if you still have no idea what that means, it's from 7.25 times 10 to the 17 hertz to around 1.9 times 10 to the 19 hertz. So that's really, really energetic uh, x-rays. In radio astronomy, you usually deal with things that are in a few gigahertz, so that's like 10 to the 9, or megahertz, so 10 to the 6. This is really energetic emission coming from a supernova remnant, as you would expect. What has been emitting these x-rays is a radioisotope called titanium-44. So it comes from the centre of the explosion, which one thing is really useful because then you can trace what's actually going on right in the centre. And secondly, it's got a lifetime of about 85 years. The supernova remnant was discovered a few sort of decades ago, so we've got quite a long time to observe what's going on. But also, because it is only 85 years, you know that it can't be part of the environment. The titanium has to be from the star. So this is really useful because before there'd been sort of mild evidence from traces of iron doing a lopsided shape as well, but you can't exclusively rule out that it wasn't just stuff that was lying around in the interstellar medium. So how it actually gets its lopsided shape is as it's undergoing explosion and everything's heating up and the the surrounding gases and dust are beginning to heat up more and more, it all starts to get a bit sort of sloshy and a bit crazy. And the ejector fires off one way and the core of the star fires off another. So there's actually quite a nice little simulation that is on the link to the original news article that will be in my summary for odds and ends. And you can see sort of how this acts out. And there are also images of the maps that they've made and comparing them with the iron maps as well. That's cool. Because I didn't even know if simulations could simulate asymmetric supernovae yet. It's always been one of these problems that I don't quite know why it's like that. Like with pulsars, since I like pulsars, you often find them just flying through the galaxy really fast. And they've come out of supernovas ultimately as the core. So the question's always been, where have they got their kick from? And so it's long been thought it could yet be asymmetry in the supernova. But on the other hand, if you've got a big spherically symmetric star, why does it collapse in a way that's not spherically symmetric? But as you say, it's sloshy. Yeah, it gets so hot and so chaotic that it just doesn't know what it's doing and it all sort of goes <laughs> everywhere, as you can see in the video. There's a nice little narration of the video as you can see different things happening and they reveal that none of the models actually predicted this quite as how they found it. So it's been really useful to study this in more detail because the models weren't quite right. And now over to a symmetrical astronomer, Dr George Bendo answers your questions in Ask an Astronomer. 
Our first question comes from Steve Smethurst, and he asks, Is dark matter in thermal equilibrium with the rest of the universe? Thermal equilibrium in astronomy could be described in one of a couple of ways. First, there's the classical physics description of thermal equilibrium, which is typically used to describe gas, and in astronomy could be used to describe interstellar gas, where the gas pressure and density is not changing over time. This would mean that the gas is in thermal equilibrium. So the second scenario you could have in astronomy is where you have a non-stellar object like the Earth in thermal equilibrium with radiation from a stellar object like the Sun. The Earth would be described as in thermal equilibrium in that situation. Its temperature does not vary significantly over time. It's on average about the same all the time. Neither of these descriptions really apply to dark matter very well. We don't know what dark matter is yet. There's still a lot of debate about what the uh, particles exactly are. But observations of things like the bullet cluster, where we see the dark matter offset from the gas, that cluster of galaxies, show us that the dark matter does not physically interact with things like gas particles in the sense that the dark matter particles are not going to collide with the individual hydrogen atoms and stop. Instead, the dark matter particles are what astronomers would call collisionless. You hurl a bunch of dark matter particles at a bunch of other dark matter particles and they'll just pass through each other and keep on going. Uh, so in that sense, you aren't going to have thermal equilibrium between dark matter and gas or other things in the universe. Now, the second definition where you you aren't going to have dark matter in thermal equilibrium with the light from stars or other objects just because, by definition, dark matter does not absorb or emit light. And so it's not going to be in thermal equilibrium with any type of electromagnetic radiation field. So having said all of this, first of all, it is possible that the dark matter could be in some form of thermal equilibrium with itself. However, this gets into very speculative issues with describing the dark matter particles. Given that we have real challenges with even just detecting the individual dark matter particles, it's really kind of hard to apply a temperature to dark matter. Second, we could very easily have a situation where dark matter is in a different form of equilibrium with other things in the universe, more specifically in dynamic equilibrium. This means that the gravitational forces between luminous matter, such as stars and gas, and dark matter balance out so that the dark matter stays in roughly the same orbits and positions around things like galaxies and clusters of galaxies. In this sense, you could have dark matter in a form of equilibrium, with luminous matter, and it's also possible that if you have things that cause a form of dynamical disruption, for example, two galaxies merging with each other, that this will result in energy being transferred between the dark matter and the luminous matter in the form of dynamical energy rather than thermal energy. Now, having said all of this, there are just a couple other things that's worth pointing out, too. Not everything in the universe is in thermal equilibrium. We see things that are either exploding all the time, such as planetary nebula and supernovae, or things which are collapsing, such as the gas clouds that collapse to form stars in star-forming regions, or we see galaxies merging with each other uh, all the time, or even clusters of galaxies merging with each other to form larger clusters of galaxies. Even with stuff that's in equilibrium in the universe, it's not necessary for stuff to be in equilibrium with all of the other stuff. One of the examples which I come across with professional astronomers all the time, is trying to explain that dust particles are in thermal equilibrium 
with the starlight that's radiating the dust, and the dust particles don't interact with the gas particles that you find in interstellar space, and the gas particles could have a completely different temperature that has nothing to do with the dust. Thanks for that question, and thanks for the answer, George. The next question comes from John Brooks, who asks, How does our solar system rotate in comparison to the Milky Way? The solar system moves more or less within the plane of the Milky Way, and rotates more or less in the circle around the center of the galaxy. There's actually a little bit of deviation from that, but it's more or less a circular motion around the the center of the Milky Way. And the center of the Milky Way is located in the constellation Sagittarius. The North Galactic Pole is located in the constellation Coma Bernices, and the angle between the plane of the Milky Way and the plane of the solar system is about 60 degrees. So, Stuff in the solar system is generally orbiting in a direction which is very inclined uh, compared to the rest of the Milky Way. So the sun is moving roughly in the direction of the location between the constellations Cygnus and Cepheus, which are constellations in the northern hemisphere. So if you are in the northern hemisphere, you see the Milky Way uh, moving towards you. If you're in the southern hemisphere, you kind of see the Milky Way moving away from you, although you'd have to wait a few million years to actually see the stars moving towards you or away from you. Nice one. Great question. had never really thought about it that way. Really interesting answer. Uh, final question comes from Mike Nash, who's written in about SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. He writes, It's often glibly said uh, the Earth has been announcing its presence to the universe by leaking radio and TV signals to space. But with traditional ground-based TV transmitters, they're non-directional, and so any leakage to space would be so attenuated that it would seem highly unlikely that this leakage could be detected at even closest interstellar distances. He notes that maybe some exceptions to this might be coded data transmissions to distant interplanetary spacecraft. So his question is that whether George, our astronomer in residence, has any comment on the feasibility of, of extraterrestrial civilizations ever detecting some of this leakage into space. So it's a little hard to look at all different scenarios where people on Earth produce radio signals for transmission, partly because it becomes kind of like a very ill-defined project to, like, identify every single source of radio waves on the planet Earth. However, I did, like, one of the simplest things possible, which was to look at how easy it would be to detect the Earth's radio transmitters, uh, which is, like, the thing that most people would typically think of when the SETI people say, oh yeah, we've been dis- broadcasting our signal for years. Radio technicians would uh, use the term effective radiative power to describe the amount of energy that comes out of a radio station, and this is based on some idealized assumptions, but it's kind of useful for describing how much energy comes out of a radio station transmitter. The typical effective radiative power of a radio station transmitter differs quite a bit from station to station, but I did a calculation which was based on using 10 kilowatts, which seems reasonable for a typical BBC station. The power produced by an AM or FM radio station may be transmitted over a relatively narrow bandwidth, such as 20 kilohertz. So, if we were at a distance of 5 light years, which is approximately the distance to a few of the nearest stars, such as Alpha Centauri and Bernard star, then total energy that we would observe could be expressed as 2.2 times 10 to the negative 34 watts per meter squared per hertz. Astronomers like to do a unit conversion to a unit called Jansky's, which makes the exponent in that number a bit smaller, so it becomes 2.2 times 10 to the negative 8 
Janskis. For reference, a powerful radio telescope observing all day can detect sources of 10 to the negative 5 Janskis relatively easily. Uh, getting fainter than that gets much harder. Now, that's one individual radio antenna working by itself, although that's kind of a powerful radio antenna. According to statistics from the CIA World Factbook, the Earth has about 44,000 radio stations. Now, these are individual radio stations. These stations may also have not only just their primary radio transmitter, but additional booster and translator transmitters that repeat the signal. Now, if all of these transmitted at the same frequency, then we would boost our two times tend to negative 8 Jansky signal up to a bit of a higher number, close to 5 times 10 to the negative 4, which actually is relatively reasonable to detect from some place like Alpha Centauri. That's given if your extraterrestrial life has set up their radio telescopes in Alpha Centauri. Of course, it also gets much fainter as you get further away from the Earth. So, yeah, if they're 100 light years away, it could, again, be really impossible unless they have really powerful radio receivers, which is, again, a possibility, but at this point you just begin making up stuff. This is still saying that it's like they're at the same technology level that we're at. They would have problems detecting us. That last calculation, by the way, is based on the idea that all of the radio transmitters are transmitting at the same frequency at the same time. If you do a calculation where you actually take into account that they broadcast at different frequencies, then your signal weakens again, and so it becomes much harder. Sure. So, so put another way, if we would have difficulty detecting a similar civilization to ours next to Alpha Centauri or thereabouts, unless they all decided to transmit all of their radio stuff at the same frequency at the same time. Yes. I think they also may even require that all of the radio transmitters are on the same side of the planet, too. So it's like you don't have <laughs> half of them eclipsed by the planet. Sure. Don't forget, you can send in your own questions on the website at www.jodcast.net. Now on to the feedback. Uh, we've got a letter here from Thailand. It says, um, Hi, everyone from sunny and warm Thailand. Uh, I love the show. I've been a downloader and listener for many years. Hope the weather in Manchester is starting to improve. Looking forward to my next cool drink and your next broadcast. Fantastic and fun. Jod rocks. That's from Bob Hughes from Chiang Mai in Thailand. It's very exotic. Yeah, jealous. Mm. I've been yeah. to Chiang Mai. It's nice. Yeah, I bet the weather's good there. It's good to think of someone listening to the Jodcast and drinking it cool drink in thailand yeah yeah it's certainly very different to us in the office with like rain outside the window <laughs> and cups of tea, of tea. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair it was about almost 15 degrees this morning That's practically uh, summer and then the winds yeah. descended <laughs> there are no emails this week no facebook on twitter we did get one message from andrew horner he sent a link to a video on YouTube. He said, an unusual and rather hypnotic representation of the vastness of the solar system. And it's called Light Speed is Slower Than You Think. Which sounds a bit weird, but it's actually not because light speed is really slow. It's just showing you how big the solar system is. So it's a journey as you as a photon would make at the speed of light going outwards from the sun. So it starts off with the sun and then you see the sun receding and eight minutes later you get to Earth and then 45 minutes after the beginning you get to Jupiter. Yeah, it's pretty cool. If you've got 45 minutes to spare and you just want to relax, you're sort of waiting, you know, whatever, 15 minutes for the next planet to fly past. That's crazy that it's only just to Jupiter takes 45 minutes, isn't it? They haven't released a full extended one to Alpha Centauri yet, which would take four years. That would be a dedicated watch. 
<laughs> and thank you for all the mentions, new follows, retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can always send us posts. The address is on the website. And finally, thanks to Emily Petroff and Joe Zintz for the interviews. The editors were Ben Shaw, George Bendo, Monique Henson and Charlie Walker. The producer was Mark Perver. Until next time, Jod on! Jod on.